I'm Mihai Malaimara, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Holy crap, Ilya, you look tired like you just flew in from Poland. <laughs> yeah, it was an adventure. I decided that I was going to try and do this trip as cheaply as possible. And I did it really damn cheap, but cheap also sacrifices convenience and how uh, the, the, the founders in Poland uh, said it was... To be it's possible. like when people call the Cannes Film Festival Cannes. Cannes, yes, or yeah. something like that, yeah. yes. Uh, so it's the Camera Image Film Festival. Yes, but... but to those uh, who are trying to sound cultured, you've probably heard it referred to as Camera Image. You know, I'm constantly going back and forth, too, because um, really there's there's a lot of people from France who are there, and they say Camera Image, and uh, the Americans all seem to say Camera Image, following the French. But if you ask the... If you ask the the, the founders who are Polish, they all say camera image. And this is a film festival with a focus on cinematography. It is. You know, it, it's interesting because it's very much a festival and I didn't intend that we would delve too much into it in this because we're going to have other episodes oh my God, coming up did, sooner. Did you do so many interviews and I'm no, so jealous no, of some of the people no, you get to talk it was, to. It wasn't that many. It wasn't that much. We'll, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. But no, it wasn't that many. It wasn't that, mm-hmm. you know, so I'm going to really, really downplay it right now. And then when we come to it, you can go like, oh, great. So yeah. people are going to be astonished. I, I'm going to play it <laughs> anyway. Welcome back to the States. Hey, thanks. It's it's good to be home. You know, it's always nice, uh, you know, to sleep in your own bed. Can I admit something? No. I've Okay. Okay, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Go I've ahead. never been to Europe. Wow. I've been to Asia. I've been to Central America mm-hmm. and uh, Canada, but I've never been to Europe. Just wait. It's it's going to happen. <laughs> you're going to you're going to get on trains, you're going to eat croissants. You're yeah, that that's all going to awesome. happen. Yeah, it's going to happen. So Awesome. Yeah. So who is on the show today? I, I think I should ask you that because I, I didn't do the interview. Oh, yes, that's <laughs> right. I did the interview. It is with Mihai Malimari, who is the astonishingly awesome DP of Jojo Rabbit. We, we spoke to everybody who worked on Jojo Rabbit except for him. Not anymore. And now we, we've spoken to him, but this was a similar situation in that it was a, uh, a press junket kind of a kind of a circumstance. We were the last one of his day. Ooh, so you got to be the longest. Um, I, I I got, but I really only had about uh, like forty minutes from the moment I walked in the door till I had to be done, which includes like you know, setting up microphones and, and pleasantries. Yes, yeah, and introducing myself and uh, you know the the briefing I give every DP before we talk to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's a fascinating guy with a great uh, great story. But before we get to Mihai, yeah, we have to talk. To, uh, we have to do our patented George Foyt close focus section. <laughs> That's right. George, the checks in the mail. Uh, okay, so I've got uh, I've got a topic, and you know I do technical things Monday through Friday. That that's my life. I do ones and zeros. I do all kinds of technical stuff for for um, lay people as well as the other extremely technical as well. And uh, something that keeps coming up, especially now that there is more higher resolution cameras becoming ubiquitous and the higher resolution phones. I want to talk about what that resolution really means to you, the person, you, the consumer, you, the audience member at home in a theater or anywhere else, because people make a big deal about 4k, but from 
and or 8K. Now there's talk about that in some various well, 4K, resolutions. 4K between. to me was like that was the big barrier because 4K was roughly the resolution of 35 millimeter film is what I was always told. I don't know if that's actually true or not. It's you know what? I'm I'm going to stick with that and say yes. And there's a lot of people out there, some film purists who love to say, oh, no, it's it's 8K resolution. And there's some other people who say, well, no, it's way less than that, because you have to look at the entire resolution of the of the the system, which uh, when you got to a theater and most typical theater sort of projection across the country, you were probably seeing something in the 2K sort of range or maybe even less. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I do wonder, like, what is the resolution loss in the old school film way of striking an inner negative and then an inner positive off the inner negative. So there had to be some generation loss because that's a deeply analog process. It is. And if it's done really, really well, you can preserve a lot of this. But the truth of the matter was, is that it wasn't always being done particularly well. And the theaters themselves weren't necessarily adhering to best practices. As I was a projectionist, I can assure you that I definitely did not adhere to best practices because I was hired as a projectionist when I was 17. Yeah, and, and that's pr- pretty much the standard across the country. So so here's the thing, though. I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole of what was film and what this is, but I, I think it's really important to talk what about what was, was film. Well, what was film for projection yeah. and uh, and talking about release prints versus answer prints versus the internegatives or interpositives or any other steps that, mm-hmm. that kind of went, went through there Fair. and how digital intermediates did change this for a lot of people, but not nearly as much as digital projection. Digital projection is sort of the, is the thing that gave audience members overall throughout the country and the world generally a better viewing experience than they were having before. I'm not saying it's the best because there are ways that you could do better than the typical multiplex out there that's showing. But, uh, I mean, there's I, always things like 70 millimeter IMAX, whatever you, 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 you keep interjecting here and then we're, we're going down in tangents. I want to get to my thesis here. All right. My, my, my thesis I, I'll is I'll shut up. Go to, what's your thesis? Where you're sitting in the theater means that you can't see the difference between standard definition and 8k. Most people are sitting in the standard middle. definition. Yes, yeah, standard definition. And like 480 by 720, whatever it was. Yes, because the resolution that you're seeing when you're sitting in the back row of the theater, depending on how big that theater is, it doesn't matter if it's 8K on the screen. You can't see it. You're sitting way too far away. The people up there who actually want to see resolution are sitting one screen height to one and a half screen heights away. So if you think if you're looking at a screen that is 20 feet high, that means you're sitting 20 feet to 30 feet back in the audience. That's it. You go any further and your your visual acuity, your ability to resolve resolution is dropping off uh, precipitously. And as you move towards the back of the theater, you are seeing less. It's the back row of some theaters is like equivalent to watching standard def across the street in your neighbor's living room. That's how little. How do you know that I watch TV like that? Yeah. You know, this, this my neighbor <laughs> never my neighbor never got an HD television. <laughs> But but the, I, I remember going to a theater once with a bunch of visual effects people who uh, were when the credits came by for the VFX, they were all applauding themselves. They all sat in the very last row of the theater. I don't you cannot see what you're doing when you're sitting 60, 90 feet away from mm. a 30 foot high screen. You just really can't. Can I tell you that like since uh, high school, my my favorite preferred row to sit in is the fourth row of any theater. Fourth row of any theater can suck if you're in an IMAX screen. Uh, I would say, well, actually, if you're in a if you're in a real IMAX screen, it's actually not that bad. That's true. If you're in like the what's the called LIMAX, LIMAX yeah. that's that's where it's like you're in a regular movie theater, but it's a, a like a TKO of an IMAX. 
there are some theater screens now that if you sit in the front row or the first few rows, um, you're actually having a terrible experience just because you are now way too close to the yeah. screen. You want to be aiming for one screen height to one and a, and a half screen heights away. That's where the DPs sit. I'd say Sometimes four, four throws closer. about that usually. Mm, I don't know. In, the, in a lot of the theaters I go to, I mean, like if you're in Hollywood and you go to the ArcLight, four throw is actually probably more than a screen height away. Because mm. the ArcLight Hollywood, anyway, has a giant maybe, area. Maybe the, where, where maybe the, the Hollywood. That's true. There, but, there, but where there's no seating. but Not know. in Sherman Oaks. Not in some other ones, too. Mm. So that's probably more like the 8th or 10th row. You hear that, everyone in the world who isn't in L.A.? Sherman Oaks. <laughs> Sherman Oaks ArcLight. Anyway. But, uh, but yeah, so, so here's the thing. It's like the same people who complained to me, like, oh, we got to have more resolution. And and this even goes for people like Well, what about at people talking? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah they're, you're, oh, I got to have 4K in my house. But you're sitting on your couch 27 feet away or 15 what feet away. Gothic cathedral do you think people are living in? I have been in many 27 people. 27 feet away. I have been in several people's living rooms where the couch is on one wall really? and the TV's on the other. And it's like, okay, that's great. You can sit here and you can watch your. your put, put giant parentheses around your TV. You're 27 feet away from it. Like, okay. how can you even focus on it? All right. All right. But okay, let's put it. But let's look not at this 30 way. So, feet, 27 feet. Uh, okay. Well, not, I, I not use quite this. Three, <laughs> not quite 10 yards. Okay, so let's say you've got a 60-inch screen. You've got a five-foot screen. Mm-hmm. If you want to see that resolution, that means you're probably sitting like seven feet away from it. That's that's what that means. And a lot of people do not sit at seven feet. They're way, way further away. Well, I also think that, uh, okay, look, I'm going to say this as me, who is fussy about image quality. Um, I have a 4K television because they're dirt cheap now to get. Yep. And uh, and so uh, we we got one about maybe a year year and a half ago, and uh, how it, far away do you think you sit? Uh, I have not measured it, but I would say not more than ten feet away. Mm, I think you might be surprised. Uh, if I if I'm fifteen feet away, that would be a big surprise to me. I'm pretty close to it. Okay, how big is that screen? Uh, our screen, I think, is fifty one images. Fifty one. So inches. it's less than less than five feet. Yeah. So okay, so less than five feet. And you're going to be sitting 10 feet but, away, but like, That's, you're, now you're sitting twice the, the viewing distance. So you couldn't even with your eyes resolve that 4K if but you wanted to. Of course not. Uh, but I guess this is this is kind of the baseline thing about it is I think resolution is a cheap way to uh, it's, it's a marketing ploy. Uh, certainly. I mean, be. I'm not saying that a 4K television doesn't have 4K resolution. I, I'm working on a f- editing a few projects right now that have to deliver for 4K, and they're all for the internet. So to yeah. me, that's even weirder because like people are going to be watching it on probably their on their phone more yeah. than more than likely. That's you know, uh, their phone or maybe a desktop computer. Now I understand the desire to shoot at higher resolutions sure. if you're going to deliver at 4K so that you sure. can reframe shots. But but people but sh- people should be honest about this. They should say honestly that that's that's what they're going for and that's that's their reasoning. A lot of people want it for it sounds like for viewing and it sounds like the people out there who are making the case for reframing uh, they don't make a very good case for it. They say that they'd like to have the ability, but they're not actually shooting in the way that they typically are going to reframe all their shots. They're not shooting particularly loose. They're not necessarily pushing in all that much in post. People are still pretty much shooting in camera what they want to deliver. And then the hope is, oh, I've just got all this extra resolution now. I've got the ability to turn this medium shot into a close I, I do I think it's, it's just it is a nicety, but I've worked on more than one project, mostly as an editor, where in the design of what was being done was 
we're going to reframe these shots. And in, in like the documentary world, uh, I know a lot of documentary people love the ability to reframe shots because they can, because you can, you can cut within an interview, you just punch in and you can get away with it. It's not jarring to the audience to watch it. It doesn't feel like a jump cut. It feels like you have two lenses. It's true. But, uh, I don't really want to hear the complaints from people when, uh, they talk about how, oh, we're in this theater and this theater's not 4K when I kind of feel like no theater that they go to is actually 4K because of where they're sitting. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, that, I, I think that that's a fair thing to say. But I, and I also think that, like, um, you know, having taken films recently on the festival circuit and delivering mostly in HD. Yeah. And uh, even Future you. Boyfriend, the, the film that I had that played over at Tribeca. That played at one of the beautiful theaters in New York City at the Tribeca Film Festival and the deliverable they wanted, and this was in 2016, so it was three years ago, uh, the deliverable was an HD uh, DCP. I, I will tell you that even festivals that might be asking for more, what's actually making it to the screen is probably HD for a lot of them. Well, so. I mean, I, I think if you give somebody a DCP, then you're in control of the compression and you're in control of the resolution and they're not going to be able to down res your DCP. It's very easy to take that 4K and turn it into HD on the way out. Um, so. I mean, is it a hardware thing or are they? It's it's a signal thing. Oh. Your signal is being changed on in route. Fair so, enough. Yeah. But uh, but anyway, re- regardless of that, do yourself a favor. Try to sit a little bit closer. If you're if that screen is is fi- that's filling really your, what you're getting at. Yeah, sit a little bit closer. You will be enjoying more, seeing more. And uh, if you don't believe me, try it. Watch. You know, if you've got the ability to watch five minutes of something and then re you know rewind, essentially hit back and then start that five minutes over again, sitting closer. Notice how much more you're going to see. You I'm going to move so close to my television that I can see the individual pixels. You probably shouldn't do that. That would be bad. That yeah. there is a there, and you know it's interesting. I want to get a sunburn from my television. There are new screen technologies which are rendering the projector obsolete. There is large interlocking, uh, essentially LED tiles, which yeah. are very very high resolution. But if you sit too close, boy, is that ugly. So you you want to be at the really the right place, which is. Not too close on those screens. <laughs> <laughs> so so anyway, so, so that's uh, that that that's about does it for uh, close focus. But really, it's like it, it, I didn't mean for this to be a rant, but just coming come from a festival and hearing people complain about resolution and then seeing them sit like three quarters of the way back in the theater. I, I feel like those people have no reason to complain. Did you shake I, your fist at them? Uh, I, I, no, I shook my head. Uh. Yeah. Just did a little nod. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's get let's get on with the interview of Mihai Malimari, uh, fascinating guy. Uh, shot for shot three movies for Francis Ford Coppola. Wow. Three movies for Francis Ford Coppola. Do you talk about this in the interview? We do talk about it in the interview because it was sort of what broke him out. And uh, uh, I, I'll say no more. Let's just go right to the interview. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right, so I'm here at a very fancy uh, hotel in Century City with Mihai Malimari. Did I say your name correctly? Perfect. Oh, wow. The DP of Jojo Rabbit. Congratulations on Jojo Rabbit. It's an amazing film. I have a year and a half old baby, so I haven't been able to take my wife to see it. I saw a screener, or not a screener, I saw a screening not very far from here on the Fox lot. Um, but I've been dying to show it to her, and, and, and I, just, I just love the movie, and I think it's uh, beautiful and an amazing piece of work. Thank you. 
we tend to start every interview with my stock question, which is a belief that was put in my head a long time ago by a DP friend of mine, which is that cinematographers start with an idea of lighting or an idea of composition when they read a script. Now, my, the very premise could be incorrect, and but I'm really just digging for what's the, the first part of cinematography that occurs to you when you're looking at a script? Um, it's, it's interesting. I mean, sometimes that can happen, but... Um, with me and especially with with George Rabbit, because I knew all the other movies that that Taika did, and uh, my goal was to to be a really good listener to start with, mm-hmm. and trying to 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 figure out what he likes and what he doesn't like, and what would be the best approach for the for the story. So kind of learning little by little, step step by step, and then trying to figure out what the main approach would be. So initially, I didn't have any like specific ideas mm-hmm. I kind of had a few but I wanted to make sure those would be right for the story I mean is that in in your interactions with Taika or is that in general uh, your approach because you've worked with some uh, let, let us say some very uh, auteurish and I imagine very opinionated directors like Francis Ford Coppola and Paul Thomas Anderson and, and so I I wonder when you're gonna go work with somebody like that and I would put Taika Waititi up there as, as a director who's kind of uh, got a signature a signature tone that he hits that nobody else hits quite the way he does do you first look to the directors for for that initial direction i i think so i mean for example with 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 francis not only because uh, tetra was our second uh, movie we did together but i knew right from the beginning that uh, he wanted to experiment with black and white so that was probably the only project where i kind of had um, a really strong idea about mm-hmm. what we want to do like uh, right when I was reading the script but with most of the other uh, projects I think it's uh, it's it's a matter of uh, taking the time and experimenting and trying to find mm-hmm. the right the right language for for each one of them so when when you are sorry to keep drilling on this no. but like when you're reading a script what what is jumping out at you are you thinking about the director that you're going to be working with or are you thinking more about the story itself or what what are you thinking I, about? I, I think a little bit of, of, of everything. And sometimes I have to admit that there are things I, I, I might think that might work for, for a particular project. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but most of the times you're, you're reading the story and you have to think about it, especially if you know the, the director's work, which was kind of the, the case for, for Taika. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think you have to take everything in consideration and then try to, to, to figure out. And uh, so the first time that uh, you would have come across my radar personally was when is when you started working with Coppola and Coppola had kind of he hadn't made something in, in a minute. He had he hadn't made a movie in a while. And then he kind of came back with a radically different style than, you know, it's, it's a different Francis Ford Coppola than the Godfather apocalypse. Now, Francis Ford Coppola. What uh, brought you to work with him? I mean, it was it was an interesting uh, moment because I was. I was really young. I was 29, I think. Oh, when, wow. When we did Youth Without Youth. And till that moment, I, I've been doing short films. And I, I did two features, two Romanian features. But mm. uh, I knew he came to, to Romania to, to shoot Youth Without Youth. And he wanted to uh, see as many actors as possible because there were so many parts in the in the movie but he also wanted to use an almost entirely romanian crew oh interesting so that's why he did 
something that's really strange and unique, I think, which uh, he did 10 test days with different actors for the same three pages of the script and uh, with 10 different DPs every day. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, so, but at that time, because I was 29 and because I kind of knew who the other DPs that were doing the test were, and I knew that two of them were actually my teachers at that time. Oh, no. <laughs> In my mind, there was no way I would get the job. So I, that was kind of my mindset going to, to the mm -hmm. test. And I was like really happy that I would get to, to shoot eight hours with Francis Coppola. And that That's was amazing. the thing. And then a few months after, I received an email from Francis that, okay, this is the script and this is how I That's crazy. pretty much want to try. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so okay, so uh, did you go to film school in Romania? I did, yeah. And your yeah. Te you you were up against your teachers? Uh, were they your film? Not really. That the teacher they were teaching in my film school, but like from from the other, like yeah, got it. <laughs> yeah. So. so what what is film school like in Romania? Yeah, now now it's been changing a little bit. Um, it used to be very much based on a European and combined with the East European uh, system mm -hmm. where there was only one film school and it was a state uh, school. Uh, the program was four years. Mm -hmm. There were only six uh, places for each uh, <laughs> department, but the school was paying for everything. Oh, wow. And we had, I remember it was really interesting, we had two film labs in the school, 116 and 135, black and white. And they were like old film labs. They were donated by some documentary companies. Yeah. And, uh, but you'd get the chance to shoot on film at that time up to six or seven short films. And you're, you're doing this like around the time the world is starting to drift a little digitally, correct? Uh, not, I mean, it was slowly drifting, mm -hmm. but uh, I would say probably like two or three years after I finished the film school, uh, we finally realized that that might happen. Yeah. When we were in the film school, we had only two options, 16 and 35, and maybe DigiBeta or DVCam at that uh, at yeah. that time. Um, but there was another interesting thing with 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 Francis's project because he already owned the the, the digital cameras, the the Sony F900s, and he knew he wanted to to shoot digital. And it was interesting because I had no I had no idea what. HD was at that point, uh, except for like a few music videos and things that I've done on, on DigiBeta. So, yeah. and what was really interesting about that at that time is that he told me he didn't want to hire a DIT and it, uh, now it makes sense. But at that time I was like, oh, okay. Uh, and then his plan was, which was great. Uh, he sent me to, to do a full DIT training in, in Burbank. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it was interesting. I became like Sony certified for, for oh, wow. that, <laughs> like without knowing anything in like 11 days, I knew how to open the camera and pretty much service it and wow. um, that was one and the other approach that he has and we, we end up doing that for the next two movies uh, he likes to take his time like in in he was in Romania for almost two years because we did an extensive prep shoot for three months and then doing most of the post-production there oh really including editorial 
Were you doing like pickups and reshoots or anything? We, we did after a few months of uh, editing. We uh, mm-hmm. we did some second unit, which was again us doing yeah. <laughs> doing the well, same. How, thing. how big? I mean, like. I, I have no idea. Having seen the movie, I have no idea what size crew. You know, like I've I, we've all seen Hearts of Darkness, yeah, and we know yeah. like the place that Francis Coppola could go to. Also, like how big of a project he could do. But like that movie feels intimate, so I wonder if it, I, I've always wondered if it was made with a tiny crew. He, it wasn't that tiny, but I think the the approach was that uh, we're trying to minimize on 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 the equipment, and he he did that before for for Rain People, where mm-hmm. uh, because it was a road movie, he kind of piled everything, every piece of equipment in in a van or two, so that will allow them to to drive and be able to pull over and and pick up a light or a camera and and shoot right away. And there was kind of the concept for Youth Without Youth as well, where uh, in a sprinter van we kind of had as much as we we could and 90% of what you would need to to shoot a movie. Wow. And uh, he put that in a container and send it to Romania. When, when so did you have like a, a normal sized crew, but but like your actual shooting unit was kind of... It was kind of small. Yeah. And, and and it was, I, I think, a medium sized crew. What what also made it different, it's it's all the all the uh, time for the, uh, what it would be a second unit or pickups. Because that, that project, especially like we had, uh, we need, we needed footage from, from Switzerland, from Geneva, from Malta, from India and for that we had a crew of two me and uh, oh, really? <laughs> another person going with a camera and and shoot those and of course it was locally organized with with some other like period cars and things like that but yeah. mainly going shooting establishings and all that so that's why the scale feels way bigger than than it was but on the other hand it was more about having enough time and not having tools but finding ways to 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 tell the story with uh, with with this in mind so what was it like going from jumping into the feature world basically you said you'd shot two other features before them but they were romanian uh, the first movie that you're making that's going to be seen by international audiences is directed by you know one of the most legendary filmmakers ever Francis <laughs> yeah. Ford Coppola how, like how, how much of a film school in in and of itself was it working with that guy uh, I mean I mean it, it was amazing because he's he's like and he still is but like very collaborative and and a lot of times he will have uh, ideas that will surprise you at, at at first but then you realize that by just risking you you end up getting so much more interesting um, things like he he still is a really big fan of uh, Ozu and that was his main approach I remember one of the things we discussed at first was that he hates when when the camera is moving for no reason and mm-hmm. he didn't like handheld and 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 all that and he wanted to experiment with like a locked off frame for most of the shots and move the camera only when it's supposed to tell something so that in itself was a was a different approach to to filmmaking because you very rarely think of like setting up a shot and lock it off and 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 yeah. capture a scene that way and so that kind of had nothing to do with any of other movies i've i've worked on like not even like romanian productions or or the movies i'm doing now so it was like such a special thing uh, by itself so well, I think that it, it also maybe is is part of like the generation that he comes from 
there's uh, kind of a theatrical, like a theater tradition That's built true. hardwired yeah. into what he does. I, I think of Coppola as being very competent, you know, a- answering my own question for, at the beginning. I, for him, I'm sure he would, he, it, it's none of my business, but I feel like his stuff is all very compositional. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, can you talk a little bit about the process of, of working on composition with him? And this is going to take us, I think, to The Master, which is also a movie that's just unbelievably compositional. With, I mean, with, with, with Francis, because we had so much time to prep for pretty much all the movies, like for, for Tetra, we, we were in Argentina for two years, so the, the, the prep was almost six, eight months. Oh, wow. <laughs> so having all this time, I remember taking so many steals and then just like kind of putting them together and just like going through location steals was kind of almost like watching a previews of, of the scenes we were about oh, wow. to shoot. So it's like when you when you have almost no tools, but you have all the time in the world, then you can you can enjoy and, and research and you can totally go for for this type of, of approach of, of, of like really precise compositions and, and, and try to, to have that dictate everything else. How do you break up when you have like eight months to prep, which is science fiction for most people, when you have that kind of time, like how do you, how do you break up, like how do you structure that prep? No, I mean everything because uh, it's not like a regular prep because part of our job was to try to figure out if logistically we can put a crew together and and shoot in Argentina the the, the script that we we had so it, it was taking a lot of a lot of time to 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 do tests and and decide on on the crew and the uh, the people we wanted to use and then then kind of finding locations. So it wasn't only like a regular prep for a movie where you, you just go there and start scouting and then trying to, to figure out the visual approach. It was also kind of piling everything up where like, oh, can we actually shoot here and can we can we find the crew we need and the locations we need and, and, mm-hmm. and how are the rules of, the, of, of this place compared to everything else we know. But also, you know, like you said, like taking lots of stills and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, you, you, it's like everything, it's like when you have more time, you, you tend to, to experiment more, which is, which mm-hmm. is great. Would you go out and like shoot stuff? Or? Yeah, 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 totally. We're like, he, he likes to, to not necessarily, like when he's rehearsing as well, uh, he, he doesn't want to go for for the the lines in the script. A lot of times he will, he will go for an idea where he will, Kind of want the the actors to to have a common memory, so we will kind of do like improv and and, and theater games. Oh, where cool. is it just like uh, let's uh, like the characters can have a, a, a dinner date, and then yeah. we go there and we film it. We kind of yeah, I've heard find, that. You know, so like it's I've like, heard that about him, where he'll like literally block and and shoot the whole movie before he makes the movie. For us, it was kind of no. It wasn't. It wasn't. The, the case. I mean, he never really prepped too mm-hmm. much or, or storyboard too much or or do like a, a like a blocking shoot for mm-hmm. like beforehand. Uh, it, it was a lot about rehearsing and, and blocking and and figuring out on the spot. But with having all this this experience 
from from a long prep. So so the easier. rehearsal process is more about like giving the characters like doing like you said theater games. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm I'm trying to remember which one of his films it might have been the conversation that I'd heard about where basically he got everybody in like a big open space and they blocked every scene and the DP came in with a video camera and shot the whole thing and they edited a version of the film yeah, yeah. before they ever made the film for real. Yeah, yeah. Like no lights, you know, like yeah. all all very loose. Yeah. Yeah, um, but they didn't. But you didn't do that. But no. you did shoot no. like like uh, improv exercises and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And did that inform how you went about uh, filming the actual scenes? Uh, a few things, yeah. Because you can you can get a few ideas and and like it's interesting when you, when you have all playing together. You know, like like in the same like in a, in a dinner scene, for example, you would you would. He will get certain ideas for for the for the script and for for the scene, but mm. that kind of uh, give everybody else idea about like costumes or or set dressing or 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 lights or everything else. Does it give you an idea about how you're going to lens a scene or how you're going to light a scene or how like the best the best way to film a specific actor or something? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, and especially with with our approach, which was not to move the camera unless it's for a real reason mm-hmm. uh, uh, especially for that it's like you you have to find ways of it's pretty much like setting a camera and photographing it and like shooting a still instead of a of a moving image how did like uh sorry to keep drilling on this one film but how did basically taking away the tool of of unnecessary camera movement which people use all the time just to keep a scene flowing and moving how did that discipline uh affect you i mean it's i I kind of enjoy it because it's it's closer to still photography and um it's it, it comes with with certain restrictions but uh, a, a lot of times you you're way more careful with composition and yeah. uh, where you place certain things like from from practicals and lights to to the actors and that was one of the main conversation was who's going to tell the actors that if they don't hit their mark they might not even be in the shot because <laughs> that was one thing that but i think they uh, they understood that it's a, it's a it's an interesting concept and everybody can benefit from from that because i think when 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 the camera doesn't become a distraction and it's like if it's constantly moving it can uh, it can help you in other ways editorially and, and and so on but when the camera move itself uh, stops being a distraction then everything else it's it's more important oh cool so, i mean like so talk about like your developing relationship with him i'm always interested in dps who work for the same directors over and over again so you worked with him on two other films right twixt and, and tetra tetra yeah yeah i mean it was it's it's always easy because when when things are working then then you 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 start for for the second movie it was way easier because we we knew each other and we, we as soon as you learn what another person likes or dislikes then it's then it's very easy and it's a f- faster moving process and mm-hmm. you move right right to the uh, more important stuff and yeah. the kind of defining the the visual language but uh, what's really interesting in working with Francis is that every single time he he will have some some crazy idea that will he will throw at you and at first you'll 
you'll feel it strange and then yeah. you realize like it can actually not only that it will work but it's actually it's better than <laughs> than you thought it will it will can be. you give me an example of one of those i mean there are a few a few of those like for example the um the idea that tetra would be black and white that was like kind of the first thing but mm -hmm. then Yes, but the flashbacks will be in color and not all of them. There will be some dreams in color and the real flashbacks will be in color. And there was a specific color that he was looking for. It was very close to a eight millimeter uh, stock mm -hmm. uh, ascochrome. So it, it kind of, and that's one of the things for, for Twixt, for example, that was based on a, uh, on a nightmare he, he had at one point. So it was a dream and it had a lot of night scenes. And I remember he told me, it's like, yeah, but I don't want to shoot at night. And we should experiment, but I don't want to, I don't want it to look like day for night. And then it was a crazy research uh, and just trying to figure out how to find that, that language. And that sounds like pretty scary and you, you yeah. don't know how to approach it. But like just digging deeper, I found um, a really interesting Photoshop tutorial that had a very interesting concept where it was it was based on on overlaying certain images so for example like if you if you have a, a a shot where there's a street lamp in 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 the shot you would apply a yellow filter on top of the first layer and then a blue filter on top of that and just by erasing the blue field the blue layer around the light you'll reveal some yellow glow and it's 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 really interesting and that was kind of the co concept and that's why twix became like a a movie with like over 800 vfx shots <laughs> <laughs> but the why, why didn't he want to shoot at night no i think i think he it's always it, it's interesting when he has these ideas like some something i i, I guess like some, but it, because it turned out to be way better than than shooting at night and were mm -hmm. more interesting like he, he just goes for for like what his initial instinct is and and a lot of times it works that's cool so that kind of breaks i mean working with a legend like him you know kind of breaks you into American, not just American, but like the awareness within world cinema. Not that there's anything wrong with working in Romania, obviously, but but you know it it, it brings you to a larger audience. And you know you worked on a number of films. I mean, like what was it like, kind of stepping off of uh, working with uh, Coppola, who you had known at that point, and, and kind of working with other directors uh, from America. Uh, I mean, it, it was a little bit of a learning curve from from certain perspectives. I, I mean, a lot of times we forget, and for for Jojo, that's what what it was interesting going back and work in Europe because the the way I learned the the gaffer is doing everything. There's mm -hmm. no real key grip position. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. The, the the key grip in Europe basically is a dolly grip, so they are oh. taking care only of of camera and like now. It felt really strange to go back to that to that system because when you when you're asking for a light uh, working in American system, you know that the key grip is listening and he'll bring all the options for flags and floppies and all yeah. all that. Like in Europe, you ask for a light and then after they bring the light, you have to ask for diffusions and flags and stuff. <laughs> the same guys who brought the light, so it's it's moving much faster and it's it's a thing that you don't think uh, you don't think about this right away, but like you realize like how how much 
more productive it is, actually. <laughs> Uh, one of the other films of yours that I just think is, you know, just an awesome uh, object of, of beauty is uh, The Master, the Paul Thomas Anderson film. What brought you to work with Paul Thomas Anderson? Uh, I'm I'm not really sure. I, I think it was, uh, again, I think it was Francis that spoke to Paul at one point, mm-hmm. And I think Paul knew that, that uh, Robert won't be able to, to shoot The Master. And what was really interesting with, with The Master, it was that we... We kind of starting talking about um, using a larger format than 35, yeah. and the only the, the reason for that was that uh, Joaquin's character was working in a in a portrait studio, and at that time they were probably using four by five um, film for for the portrait studios. So we wanted to go as close to that uh, yeah. as possible, and we we tested some variations like we tested vista vision at one point really i didn't know that they still made vista vision cameras or i I guess i mean basically there was only one blimped camera that was available somewhere in australia and nobody could track it down (laughs) and there there was a hybrid it was a a camera that was made by somebody in san francisco and it essentially was like an airy three and an airy two together with a mag rotated like 90 degrees so the film can travel horizontally and the the biggest problem like that was non-blimped to start with and by the way and not to get too technical yeah. for our listeners but VistaVision was like an old format that didn't quite take off and then like George Lucas pulled it out of mothballs to use in like the Star Wars movies but you're basically getting like a 70 millimeter sized image by doing three frame pulling across instead of a single frame pull down am, am I no, correct about I that? No I think it's I think it's, it's just that the it's the same what is called today full frame yeah. uh, so basically the your film instead of traveling horizontally tra- uh, vertically travels horizontal so you your your frame it's it's like twice as large as a regular yeah, 35 yeah. Uh, the down part of it is that you get only five minutes per mag yeah. um, instead of 10 minutes per, per mag with a with a regular 35 and and also it's not a giant difference and it's not a giant jump in format uh, mm-hmm. so that's why we we went to the next available one which was 65 5 perf and yeah. Panavision had uh, blimped cameras and 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 all that. Plus, you get nine minutes per mag, way more expensive and and way bigger frame. And the the initial approach was to shoot only portraits with that, and only ten percent, if not less, of the, of the whole movie. But as we were watching dailies after the first week, we kind of switched to shooting ninety percent on. on <laughs> I imagine that, that, that that's got to be a pretty sweet format to work. It in. is. It is. And there's I mean, been kind of a kind of a renaissance of that between like Tarantino's The Hateful Eight yeah, and yeah. everything Christopher Nolan does in IMAX and then slums it in 70 millimeter, yeah. 65 millimeter, <laughs> yeah. and then the you know the master. I mean, you know, it's, it's such a such a gorgeous film to look at. Yeah, thanks. I mean, it's it does because the the, the your normal lens becomes like almost an 80. So it's and just like you get the same field of view that you'll get with a 35 yeah. with, with an 80. So it's like it's very close to to, to medium format. So an 80 is, is sort of like what the eye sees. Pretty much. Wow. Pretty much perspective wise, it's not just a, of course, of course. But but just like it's a complicated yeah, thing. But there's yeah. you know, sort of <laughs> yeah. that idea of like 25 yeah. millimeter and 16 versus 50 and 35. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Anderson to me seems like a, a director who's extremely concerned with composition. Like his his 
stuff is so is so built together is so built to fit a certain way what was uh, can you can you talk to me about the preparation the creative process that you went through on, on that film I, I think we, we I remember we did a lot of tests and it was pretty much choosing from from 185 to 240 it was actually yeah. the, it was actually the first movie that that Paul did in 185 I think uh, oh, I, I never yeah, thought about that. Yeah, and it, it was also the fact that we knew, like, like sixty-five, five, five perf. It's, it's an interesting format, and you can use anamorphic lenses on that, the one point three anamorphics. Mm. But we, uh, I don't even know if they, uh, those were lenses that were built for Ben Hur back in back oh in the day. Oh my God, day. really? And now, I mean, the ones I, you guys used? I use them. No, I use them for the hate you give. But back then, uh-huh. when we did the master, I don't think they were. They were available. I mean, they were probably on a shelf somewhere because even even the the, the sixty five mil cameras they weren't really in, in use at that that point. The lenses we used were based on on Hasselblad and and Mamiya mm-hmm. pretty much. They were like rehoused steel photography medium format lenses. Oh wow! So like, I mean, that's something I never knew about about sixty five millimeter lenses. So like, what are some of the things about working in sixty five millimeter that maybe the average cinematographer who's never done it wouldn't even know? Like, would have to learn on on. It's it's very similar to to shooting six six four five medium format mm-hmm. in, in steels. So so everything is is uh, there are not too many. I mean, now there are a little more with with the Alexa sixty five and and so on. But they they weren't too too many lenses options like uh, available so and and also there were a few really interesting ones that that Panavision made because when you think about about how big your your negative is and also like how rare is to find really good wide lenses mm-hmm. um, because probably like even with 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 a Mamiya 645 or, or any medium format still photography like when you go wider than 45 that's not only that it's like crazy expensive but they don't look Right, sometimes you know. Interesting. Um, yeah, I guess. I guess. Like, I never really thought about like what is what's the deal with the seventy millimeter lenses because those have to be expensive and and seven or sixty five millimeters shot so infrequently. You know, like where do they come from? No, and if you think about it, it's like it's a giant surface. It's a giant negative that you need to to cover. And, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, there. Does that? I mean, does that affect your day-to-day process? I mean, I know the camera's big. It it does. I mean, I think the what was interesting about it is that like the camera that has 120 pounds, like that's it's so, it kind of dictates the whole approach because uh, if you compare it to to an Alexa Mini now, where you can yeah. <laughs> put it anywhere and have no. all that, so I think it kind of dictates that, and it's it's interesting and. There's one. It feels like a restriction uh, to start with, but I think you you get uh, you get better better ideas out of it. Well, it seems like is sort of the the theme at least that's emerging from this conversation is that you're given these restrictions. You know, the camera, or you know, uh, you know, we're sh- we're 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 going to shoot all the night scenes during the day, but we're not doing day for night, and it forces you to kind of rise to a level, you know, to to reach that at that creative aspiration. And 70 millimeter in itself, like, you know, the rewards of it are are obvious when you see it projected on the screen. But it's uh, I've never worked with it. So, like, I don't know what it must be like, you know, just hoisting that monster around all day long. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a challenge for everybody. Like, imagine, like, focus pullers. You yeah. Know? So, like, we, we had an amazing, amazing team on, on, on the master. Well, and imagine that focus becomes way more critical. Like, yeah. it's, it's, you yeah. know, just because yeah. of the circle of confusion. It's, it's basically left or right eye. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Oh man, that's crazy. 
So um, I would I would love to get deeper into a lot of the other films that you have, but again, our time here is a little short, and so I want to get into Jojo Rabbit, which uh, our our team went and saw and uh, and love it. It's you know definitely my favorite film that I've seen all year. Just a, a beautiful piece of work. And Taika Waititi, you know, again, s- someone who has a mastery of a very specific tone a very specific feeling uh what what brought you into his orbit and uh, you know like how did how did you end up on the project i, I mean it, it really happened fast because i was doing reshoots for the hate you give in atlanta when i when i received the script and then i read it and i the next day i had a skype conversation with taika and uh, after finishing the reshoots I came to LA for four days and then flew to Prague, so it was it was a really fast yeah. <laughs> process. But reading the script and knowing all the other movies that Taika did, I, I kind of I could see what uh, what what he wants to do with, with with this story. It kind of has a Kurt Vonnegut tone to it that it's like hilarious until it's suddenly tragic, like it swings from farce to tragedy. Now, how do you go about looking at a tone like that, like from a from a photographic and a lighting standpoint? when you're trying to balance these tones what do you how do you go about doing it i mean just watching his other movies and knowing that like he's he's doing comedy but he's using comedy for for a bigger purpose mm-hmm. and for pointing out different things not not just funny things yeah uh, then then you find to you're trying to find the right balance in in lighting uh, something like this and it's not uh, knowing that you don't necessarily need to overdo it, overlight it as a comedy, or yeah. or just being too dramatic with, with with lighting and just like finding the right balance, uh, it's it's the right approach because you'll never know when when the sh- tone will shift with exactly. <laughs> well, well, but like you knowing in the script where the tone yeah. will shift. Like yeah. for instance, I'm thinking. I'm sorry, spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen it. Uh, the scene the scene where Jojo finds the butterfly and then and then that leads us to kind of a very tragic moment. Um, like that scene kind of walks this line from like beautiful and magical finding beauty and magic in the in the misery of World War two at the end of the war and then just and then just honestly just kills you emotionally at the end of it and that if I'm not mistaken wasn't that one unbroken shot um, of him following the butterfly I could be wrong about that yeah yeah I'm probably I'm wrong, sure. yeah. but but <laughs> no, no. but uh, even if it isn't, what are your concerns when you're looking at something like that and saying like, okay, how are we how are we going to set this tone visually? Because that is such a visual sequence as well. I mean, for for that one, we uh, we knew, and I mean, our our main goal for for that one, and that was something we we spoke early on that we'll have to make the audience aware and like make sure that the audience knows like how Rosie's shoes will look like. Yeah. So, but without, we're trying to do it without placing the camera like really low and just shoot a close up of the shoes. That yeah. was like too obvious. So we wanted to, to go for locations that will allow us doing that, but not by not necessarily just placing the camera down low, but just having her walk on a, on a higher piece. Yeah, of that's like when they're in the park or something. Yeah. Or in the, in the pool, in the swimming pool and, yeah. and all that. So there was, we knew that was our goal. And there was one thing that we definitely spoke about and like we knew that that's kind of how it would be and we won't show more than, than that. Mm-hmm. But there were others where things were evolving and as, as like Taika was saying at, at, at one point, like he, he likes to test a lot his, his movies and tone down certain jokes or, or just like bring certain moments. You mean like test with, with an audience. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and there were things that were happening like 
overnight or like right on <laughs> on as we were shooting them so as long as you're open to to all these changes and realize that those will, will actually make everything better then mm. then it's it's i think it's good to be able to to adapt when <laughs> when working with taika so uh and and you shot that in eastern europe right yeah in czech republic so were you able to like tap any of the crew that you had known from your earlier days no not really i mean i i i was able to bring my uh like two of my all-time collaborators my my dit eli berg and my uh first ac sean mayer mm-hmm. uh and that that was a huge help because there's like you can do a lot when when you know you get so much help from 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 my dit and being able able to to set a look that will stay like that for dailies yeah for a long time until you get into the di process but um because we were doing projected dailies that that helped a lot um and that was something that like unfortunately it's very rarely done today yeah but it's a it's a really great thing because most of like we had most of the keys Uh, at at, the, uh, at those daily screenings and i think it helps the whole process quite quite a lot because it's it's one thing to to be alone in a hotel room watching you on a, on a small screen yeah, and yeah. totally different thing to experience it kind of like like the audience will and it doesn't seem like it would be that difficult to do projected dailies in in theory no but we 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 had our i mean it's tough because it's very hard to go into a, a real facility or with a big screening room during weekends and mm-hmm. and so you have to do it at the end of one shooting day and it's always it's always tough <laughs> <laughs> and, and like what are the things that you're going to learn from projected dailies that you're not going to learn otherwise I, i mean a lot you can you can see a lot more more things and just like the, the size of the image it's everything from from contrast to to colors to to light to focus to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to everything else And how does it affect you when you know, for instance, that you're going to go through a digital intermediate pass and you're going to change a lot of things? I mean, it, it, it does, but like at least you 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 have a better of an understanding of of how uh, an image will look. When I, I don't mean when a digital intermediate. I mean well, a color yeah, grade. The, the color grade. But I, I think it 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 can inform you with with so many things and it can give you ideas for for the grade later. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. I mean, I think we're almost out of time here. Yeah, we're we're basically out of time. So, what are you on to next, if you don't mind my asking? Uh, I'm just waiting now, reading a few things, but <laughs> nothing. <laughs> waiting to take waiting yeah. to make your next move. <laughs> to see where. Is there a place that our listeners can find your work online? Do you have a website or some kind of uh, Instagram page or um, any kind of presence? Uh, yeah, I have a few of the a few Instagram accounts because <laughs> I separate them for steals and for for behind the scenes. <laughs> Well, yeah. where can people find you on Instagram? Uh, my name would like underscore photography or underscore cinematography. Okay, cool. Yeah, well, I'll, so I'll send you that. Uh, please I'll send it to me that. and we'll, yeah. uh, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. Well, uh, thank you very much. And uh, hopefully we can bring you into our uh, studio and do a more in-depth and talk about, you know, some of your other amazing work that you give <laughs> and some of the other stuff that I feel like we didn't have time to do. Uh, thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you. All right, so that was Mihai Malimari. Thank you so much for coming on, and uh, hope to have you again sometime when we're not in a press junket and we can talk longer. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So, so Ben, I think it's time to pay the bills. I love paying the bills so Ooh. much. It's my Ooh. favorite thing to do. I put on the little little green hat, and I... Uh, Bill playing time. Yeah, so... So, uh, hey, is that music I hear? That is coming? music. That's it is, music behind it's it. It's music. One might even describe it as a bed of music. Whoa. It's crazy, right? <laughs> It sucks to get bogged down in the editing process while you try to track down a soundtrack for your film. 
We've been there. I've certainly been there. Uh, I might be there right now. Oh, boy. We've been there, and so has the team at Musicbed. In fact, that's the entire reason why they built their platform. They've made it easier than ever for you to find and license the songs you're looking for with an intuitive and easy-to-use browser and search. Amazing indie artists and bands and incredible composers like Ryan Taubert and Chad Lawson. You know what? They have some other pretty incredible uh, incredible people on there, too. Maybe we shouldn't give all the credit to Ryan and Chad. Yeah, they don't do all the songs at Musicbed. That would be, those guys would be the two busiest musicians who ever lived if they were doing all the music on yeah, Musicbed. You know what? There, there is some really great music right now, and uh, I don't know who this is, but it's great. <laughs> it really is. It's, Why don't we put it in the show notes? We'll, we'll put, put it in the show we'll notes. We'll put it in the show notes. If you like this music right now, boom, it's in the show notes. Absolutely. So you should know the roster is growing every day, far beyond Ryan Talbert and Chad Lawson. <laughs> Those guys, though, are prolific. They are pretty amazing. The roster is growing every day with tens of thousands of songs, ranging from cinematic and electronic to indie rock and hip hop. And with either single song licenses or subscriptions that give you unlimited downloads, there's something for every type of filmmaker, even me. To create your free account. Hey, everybody, we, we're going to give you an opportunity to create a free account. When do you get to do that? Um, don't answer that. Don't answer that. <laughs> to create your free account and to learn more, go to musicbed.com. But as a cinematography podcast listener. That's right. Cinematography podcast listeners, they're giving you a one-month subscription for free, which you should just do that. You should just do it. And you should totally use the the, the cool coupon code. Yeah. Yeah, the coupon code is CinemaPod. You can do the one-month free subscription or 20% off a single song license. But honestly... Do the month. Do the month and like if, and, and get a bunch of stuff for your projects and you'll realize how awesome it is. Don't totally do that. So use the, use the promo code CinemaPod when you check out. I, I feel like we need a good slogan. Music bed. Put that edit to bed. That's actually not bad. Yeah. That's not yeah. bad, especially for the editors out yeah. there. Yeah, yeah you can have that for free. All right. All right. So, hey, we have one other sponsor. We oh, my God. We, we have two sponsors? We have two sponsors for this show. I feel uh, like I'm getting so rich just thinking about this. <laughs> Don't laugh that hard. Oh, uh, I just, yeah. I just wish they could see the account. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, Aperture. We got to talk about Aperture. They're Aperture awesome. makes awesome LED lights. And last time uh, I talked about the 120D Mark II. And very, very briefly mentioned that there's this other light that is even more powerful than the 120D Mark II, and it's called the 300D Mark II. So it is more than twice as powerful. And it's twice the marks of the other 300D. <laughs> it is the Mark II. Yeah, it is the Mark II. And, and frankly, the Mark I, uh, even though it's still sort of available right now, if you are considering between the Mark One and the Mark II, it is worth a couple extra hundred bucks and buying the Mark II just because it is more powerful, has an improved reflector, and that thing puts out a tremendous amount of light without having to have this weird two-piece split ballast thing. They put it all in one piece. So if you're looking for a light, Aperture 300 D Mark II, very popular among the YouTube crowd, also making its way onto bigger and bigger sets. It has uh, what's known as a Bowens, a Bowen's mount in the front, which allows you to easily put on all kinds of attachments and Aperture makes a lot of attachments and they're also quite inexpensive. Uh, if you are doing any sort of corporate run and gun music video type of stuff, and I am all the time, then Aperture is your friend and you definitely want to take a look at what they're doing. Uh, I have been very impressed at some of the bigger pros out there now too, having one of these sort of like under their bed that they can, they can whip out and, you know, boom, light a whole scene in a matter of seconds. 
That's cool, and it fits under your bed. It does fit under your bed. It's, it's a little creepy that you got a light under your bed, but <laughs> it's not that creepy, you know. Especially if my like friend he... Dan Myrick made a movie called Under the Bed, all about some stuff that goes on under a bed, and it was super creepy. All right, well, you know, you know, if you're living in New York or London or a major city where space is at a premium, I know quite a few people who keep their kit under their bed. Oh, yeah. We live in L.A., man, where like space <laughs> is just like plentiful and cheap. Tell that to some of the people who are living in like, you know, Van Nuys right now. So oh, you mean like me. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I live in Sherman Oaks. Anyway, you got a garage. You're lucky. You're yeah, one of the lucky ones. That's true. So, okay. So yeah, Aperture, definitely look them up. Uh, Aperture will be in the show notes. So one of our uh, lovely sponsors. So uh, they make all kinds of cool stuff. Definitely check them out. Check them out. All right. So before we get to our short ends, uh, there was a shout out you, we uh, need to give. Yeah, so. we, we got to give a shout out to Ed Sayers, who uh, is involved with the Straight 8 Film Festival. Mm-hmm. Straight 8 Film Festival uh, gave us a big shout out. Uh, this took place uh, recently in London, and they had uh, Ellen Curris as a guest. The esteemed Ellen Curris. And if you haven't already listened to our interview with her from about whatever, a month, month and a half yeah, ago. Yeah, go back and listen to it. It's fantastic. One of my favorite ones we ever did. Uh, so anyway, Ed uh, did an interview with Ellen and put up on his big screen in front of this packed house full of people uh, a QR code that will take them straight to Ellen's episode. So he did something super, super cool for us. And uh, we have to just promote him now and say, that, like, hey, uh, the way his festival works is you shoot one Super 8 cartridge. That's two and a half minutes. Uh, I think depending on your frame rate. But yeah, yeah two and a half to yeah, three minutes. Something who's like that. shooting 18 frames per yeah, second? I, I used to shoot 18 frames a second. So. <sighs> and anyway, <laughs> I think most of the better cameras, they only shoot 24. Yeah, now, yeah. So. But uh, yeah, it's like... The new the new Kodak Super 8 camera that has yet to actually hit the streets. That, that, that does every frame rate. Go on. I think the way it works is you shoot one Super 8 cartridge and any editing, I think, is editing in camera. I don't think there's any other editing. Oh, it's like, Otherwise, it's like first semester film school. That's exactly. It's like first semester film school, which um, which I think everyone should experience at some point. And he's got a really great jury in the 2019 jury selection. He had a guest of the show, Robbie Ryan. As, Whoa. I know. And, and a whole bunch of other esteemed people. And 2020 is coming up and he's currently looking for submissions. So if you want Wait, more how information, do you, how do you submit? I mean, you, you go make the Super 8 film and then submit it to them. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. So, so I, I don't know exactly uh, all the details, but the details are on straight eight. And that's eight, the number eight, not spelt out dot net. Neat. Not to be confused with the split eight film festival where you shoot on an eight millimeter camera, not a Super 8 camera. It, with daylight rolls. Really? That's a real festival? No, I just made that up. Oh, I see. Okay. You're being a, being a smart ass. I'm, that's what I am. That's what you do. Okay. Gotcha. You're, I'm sorry. <laughs> you're, you're, you're still a little fuzzy from uh, jet lag. So uh, <laughs> you, I'll cut This you is twice time. you've mentioned that. I really don't feel too fuzzy. So. <laughs> <laughs> And now, short ends. All right. So, uh, Ben, have we reached the short ends time of the show? We, we have. And uh, it occurred to me, like, uh, we recorded the last set of host wraps literally at my house. We did. And, and I was trying, uh, you had to leave. So I, did. I, I didn't get to show you this thing that I was like, oh, I should make that a short end because it's awesome and it's a tool that I use every fucking day. And a lot of our listeners probably already have a Vimeo account that they use when showing their work specifically to showing their work to clients. Hmm. And I understand we're a cinematography podcast and not an editing podcast. However, I think that every filmmaker uh, can, can do well with this. And in fact, I used it recently on uh, season four of 20 seconds to live or season four. We only did two seasons. (laughs) I used it recently on season two of 20 seconds to live 
on one of the episodes where George Foyt, our DP, was not available to color correct it. So I color corrected it, posted it to Vimeo, and he gave me his notes and we went back and forth. And this is what it is. Vimeo has a section uh, called review tools. You have to be at the, uh, I forget what it is. It's like the $20 a month level, but I don't think you're signing away a blood oath that you have to do it for a year. So if you're working on a project, you can do it for that month. Because hmm. I've been using like the Vimeo Plus subscription for I don't know, probably eight, nine years. Anyway, what it gives you is your your film, whatever you post it, with like off to the right, there's like a comment section and you can stop on any frame, click on that frame, click anywhere on the screen and write a note. So like literally if there's a, a text file that's misspelled, you could, you could put a, a pin right on the text that's misspelled. So the person who has to make the changes can, can see exactly what it is and there's even a checkbox on each note so that as you do them you can check them off so that the client can go okay uh you know he or she did all those notes i've even gone so far sometimes as to when i upload a new version if i need to explain to them what i've done i'll go to their exact time codes and put pins there and and put a note so that they can go right to all the changes that they asked for which saves them time and also, frankly, saves them finding problems in places they hadn't found in the previous path. So it, it saves everybody a, a little bit of time. But honestly, if you're already using Vimeo, which is a very common tool for uh, review, I, I think it's uh, kind of an indispensable thing. And I've been using it with a lot of my clients on various projects and then also on my own stuff like 20 Seconds to Live. It sounds it sounds like a fantastic tool, and uh, notwithstanding the twenty seconds to live plug there, which our our audience should totally go watch. Yeah, go. It's free. Just go to twenty stlcom Watch the whole whole show. And, and each episode is actually more like a minute, not twenty seconds. No, each episode. Uh, our shortest episodes are about a minute and a half. Our longest episode, I think, our our Ben Hur is about three minutes. Whoa. Okay. All right. Well, uh, my my short end this week is artificial intelligence replacing filmmakers. I, I can't wait. <laughs> there has been plenty of ink spilled on this topic now for a period of time. And I just read something, too, about a studio uh, that is claiming that they're going to be selecting movies via AI or something, too. And that's going to how they're going to determine what the best. I'm going movies. to go ahead and predict that whoever they are, this is going to fail. Go it's, on. This is going to fail. It's going to fail. It's going to fail spectacularly well, and miserably. It was the same thing as uh, there was a studio called Relativity that uh, famously went out of business and they claimed that they had an algorithm that was going to be able to pick the winners. It was going to know. And for a little while, they seemed to do pretty well. But then spectacularly, they 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 no longer existed. Now, I mean, uh, if you had an algorithm that could do that. Couldn't you just create an algorithm that would predict the stock market and make yourself infinitely more rich than making movies? It seems like it. It seems really, like that would be not not to go all Darren Aronofsky pie on you here. How about, but I feel like that seems way more easy to predict than what is what's a movie that's going to get made well by a good filmmaker. How about just predicting the, the Super Bowl? How about something you can bet on legally? Yeah. I mean, how about that? I mean. Uh, anyway, the movies, but you know, the movie business is sexy. People want to be in the movie business. So, hey, you've got this special proprietary thing that nobody else has got. Well, they're trying to do it now with actually the creation of movies and writing of scripts. There's Good luck. Artificial intelligence that, you know, a 
Google's data scientists partnered with some other people for a 48 hour film festival. You and I just watched a little thing on Wired about it. It's like, yeah, with Thomas Middleditch. I mean, it's funny. It's funny. You can watch it. It's like weird abstract art. I mean, it's, it it could be best compared to like, you know, a a Tommy Wiseau script where it feels like it's a script (laughs) that's written by an alien who heard what a movie was and then tried to write a script later. You're tearing me apart. It's about it. it it's, I mean, it's it's kind of abstract art, weird. Like I mean, yeah, to me, it's, it's not. It it's rises filled to, with non sequiturs. And yeah, it's not logical. It, and it's because they fed a bunch of like award winning, amazing scripts into an algorithm and said, "Make us a new script using the discarded parts of these other ones." And then they actually said, "Okay, make a movie with you know a bunch of public domain footage and put these actors' faces on it." And they generated a score. And I got to say. I think the score was terrible, but there's already been a bunch of like AI type of score things out there. So this is nothing really surprising. Yeah. So, but once you get into too many complexities and, and, and I really mean, I think music, so much of music is math. And I think an algorithm can wrap its head around music a lot easier than it can wrap its head around the subtleties of, of a human emotive face. And I'm not saying that AI should replace composers, But I'm saying that, like, I can understand that a computer could understand the math of music. I guarantee you that they'll be able to, and they already are to a certain extent right now, be able to AI a face, be able to computer generate a face, like, you know, essentially a drawing, a photograph, a CG face, far before they're going to be able to do a script and at least a script that's good that you're going to want to, that you're going to want to experience in some way or another. They can do a face. And this is an ongoing argument I have with our esteemed composer, Kay Zalatracci. Who's not listening. Who's definitely for sure not listening to this. But Kay's and I have talked about this repeatedly where he's like, you know, you'll be able to have a library of of uh, rigged faces and gestures and emotions and stuff. And I'm like, nothing will ever beat a person in my and maybe maybe I'm grandpa yelling on, on the curb to get off my lawn. But I don't think I am. I think that. Uh, the spontaneity and the soul that a human being, an actor, a writer, uh, a, a cinematographer, a director, these, an art director, any of these people standing on set reacting in real time to real things, that's what creates the emotional connection. And uh, like the best video game cutscenes, which are still based on real performances, somehow feel a little removed because they don't look like they're uncanny valley. Yeah. And so it's like uncanny valley for writing uncanny valley for acting. Like, have you been following the whole James Dean thing too? Oh God. Yeah. 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 So, uh, but I mean, if they go through with it, in my opinion, for for those of you who don't know the James Dean thing, uh, I believe it's the family of James Dean is looking to, uh, license his likeness for computer. It's a Vietnam era movie that has reached out and I don't even think the movie's financed yet. And it, I, I wonder if it'll happen cause it got so much negative backlash, but they decided the filmmakers decided that the only perfect actor for this was James Dean. But I feel like <laughs> if they were to do it, if you were to say no one else can play this part, you, you okay. So <laughs> let, let's pretend for a second though, that using uh, whatever CGI kind of stuff, and I'm sure lots of deep fake like technology or next generation deep fake, you're still going to have to bring in an actor. You're going to have to cast someone who sounds like James Dean probably, and someone who's, who can, who, who acts like you, you can't steal James Dean's essence. Yeah. You can't steal his, perf- Je ne sais quoi. his performative uh, instincts. Mm-hmm. 
you you can't you can't remake those so i don't care if you get the best living actor alive or you get an amazing actor who looks a lot like james dean and then get it you know so you get it like 60 percent of the way just by doing that and then get it the other 40 percent with visual effects and all that stuff there's still you're not gonna it's not gonna be a james dean performance it's gonna be a performance of someone pretending to be james dean and that might even just be an animator who's animating a, a, a but that's gonna be enough for these filmmakers it sounds like well, it's I mean, going to be, uh, is it enough for them? Sure. But is it enough for an actual audience? I mean, to me, that's, that's the real test. Like, okay. Like a uh, sky captain in the world of tomorrow put oh, yeah. uh, used, uh, unused footage of Lawrence Olivier in it. And I thought that was, that was clever or uh Batman, uh, not Batman, excuse me, excuse me. Superman mm. returns used unused footage of Marlon Brando from the first uh, Richard Donner Superman. Hmm. And that, never saw that. that kind of stuff is kind of cool. I mean, maybe the most famous example of this is Paul Walker in the Fast and the Furious movie after he died. And like he had two brothers who came in and one of them, I guess, looked like him and one of them sounded like him. And they finished. And then between they, that, they, they, were, them. They, they were able to double them. And then they also used like very complex face tracking technology. A friend of mine actually worked on this part of it. Uh, who's a VFX guy, and they were able to sort of recreate Paul, yeah, Paul Walker, Paul Walker in in a few of the scenes that uh, that that he you know that he wasn't able to finish in the middle of making this movie, but like that was honoring Paul Walker's uh, performance, his last performance, and it was his family participating and everyone saying like the last work he did, we want to release that in into the movie. They didn't go forth and say like we're going to make Paul Walker now available for everybody and yeah. his brothers are going to double him from here until the end of time. <laughs> Here's an open source Paul Walker poseable uh No, thing. They, they didn't do anything. But like also that. The, the thing you can't like I have yet to hear anyone do a convincing voice double digitally and and they're trying. Like oh, I the, have. That technology is starting to exist. Oh, it, it sure is. But I have yet to hear one that's even vaguely convincing. Oh, okay. Well, it's uh, video gorillas. I mentioned them on the show before, but I, I picked the computer as the real person three times in a row, and I'm, yeah. I'm, okay, but there was there's uh, a service, and I forget what it's called, and it was recently acquired anyway. But uh, There are fr- some terrible ones A friend of mine, too, yeah. uh, said, like, basically, you'd call it on your phone, and you would say these sentences over like a bunch of different sentences. And the more you did, the more it would, it would kind of hone in on your voice. And I did it for like a half an hour. And, and when was I was crap, done, it's still, uh, look, I could, I could hear that it sounded a little bit like me, but it didn't, it, it didn't capture it's, it's the still, nuances. It sounded like Ben Rock. It, it sounded like the Siri version of me. <laughs> and, uh, and that's fine. I, I, I think that the, the other thing about it, too, take a right turn, loser. <laughs> It's, like, it's just, so it's kind of, kind of surly. And, yeah, <laughs> Wait a minute. I think that was criticism. Um, anyway, um, no, but well, but, you were saying how you were a smartass earlier, so I, I figured am, that like but, that might come through. I didn't realize so. I was a surly smartass. Um, anyway, no, but but I think that that, uh, but even if I could completely perfectly encapsulate, say, Anthony Hopkins' voice. Mm. Can I make a performance that sounds as good as an Anthony Hopkins performance? And I think that that is virtually unattainable. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, that's a tough. Uh, it's tougher to get all of those subtleties across, but to make a computer now have the voice of and to d- do delivery of is uh, startlingly here. And that is uh, takes a lot of processing, takes a lot of time. But that is we're rushing headlong into a world where 
Morgan Freeman will be able to license his likeness and you'll be able to type something out and it'll sound like Morgan Freeman narrating whatever you would like. And Morgan Freeman's yeah. going to do really well for that. I'm, I'm sure it's yeah. I'm sure it's great. But could you replicate Morgan Freeman's performance from the Shawshank Redemption vocally? Possibly. I don't. I, just, I will just, believe it when I hear it. Yeah, I know. I didn't believe it before I heard it either. But it's that that's coming. But again, these are parlor tricks. These are parlor tricks for, you know, audio and for visual. And yeah, it's, it's like deep fake. I mean, like there's the fear that like, you know, you could get someone to do a perfect impersonation of, you know, say a political figure or a celebrity or whatever and and deep fake them. But I, I have yet to see a deep fake that has tried to do that. Like uh, we mentioned on here, Corridor Crew at one point, mm-hmm. and they did one with Keanu Reeves. That I thought was a lot of fun, but the guy who played Keanu Reeves just wasn't a super convincing Keanu Reeves. So it looked like Keanu Reeves doing stuff until he gestured or spoke in any way. Well, uh, Mark, my, my, this is this is what we're going towards. Uh, we're we're going towards this sort of thing being fakeable. What I'm saying is that the script writing and the hey, uh, show me a movie about uh, you know revolutionary soldiers in Oklahoma. Uh, you know, with aliens and it's, it's not going to happen. You're not going to get, uh, you're, you're not going to get some I'm, sort of, I'm going to go write that right yeah, now. Yeah, I figured you would. <laughs> so, <laughs> but you're not going to get that out of a computer and actors generally are, are going to be less expensive. I believe actually, even the, the big, even if big you were free, I feel like it, actors are going to be more convincing. I think that this stuff is going to be great for death defying stunts that you would never ask a stunt man to do. Perhaps, perhaps that's the case. Or if you just need to do a face replacement or you need to do some other sort of visual trickery or audio trickery. But if you want the actual, if you want the meat and potatoes, if you want what it, what something is, and if you want it to be a good story, that's not their strong suit. That's not really a parlor trick. Not yet anyway. And probably not for decades. When we get to the point where it's like that, I'm like, who's this for? Who's like, it for? To, we're entertaining other people. You know, it'll be time com- to turn off computers, the TV and go outside. Computers entertaining other computers. You know, like I exactly. I, I just don't. Uh, there was an on Silicon Valley a couple of weeks ago. There was an yeah. episode where one AI is talking to another AI, and they just continue to you know <laughs> go off at infinity at yeah. each other. So anyway, yeah. So let's wrap it up thusly. Okay, okay thusly. Uh, who should we thank today? Ah, oh, wow. The let's same thank, people let's, we thank every let's, time. Let's thank our let's thank our editor supreme Ben Katz. Ben Katz is awesome, nice guy, and an amazing editor, and makes us sound uh, much smarter and uh, more articulate than we really are. Let's thank the frequently mentioned and uh, frequently not listening uh, Kay Zalatrachi. Kay's, we love you to death. You're one of my closest friends. Just listen to the podcast once. How about subscribe? You know, it, he, it, co- he, it doesn't cost you anything. He could do it. He could then just delete it after it's he subscribed. And it would, he could say, hey, I listened to a couple episodes and wow, it's pretty good. And I like the way you're using my music. That's all he has to say. Uh, let's, He's a filmmaker. God damn it. Yeah, arm twisting, arm twisting. He's not uh, hearing it. OK, uh, yeah. let's let's thank Alana Cody. Alana Cody, producer who, extraordinaire, who has been pushing us to release more and more episodes, pushing and, us and to, and into this room right now where we are recording. So. Yes, I'm here instead of watching The Watchmen that, and, and Rick and Morty in the same night. Wow. OK, there's a little window into your soul right there. Right there. Yeah. All right. Uh, OK, then uh, uh, where let, can people find you online? Find me over at Hot Rod Cameras. Hot Rod Cameras is a place to buy anything that you think you might ever want to buy related to a camera, a lens, a light, or an accessory. And a lot of matte boxes, man. We got one or two of those. Yeah. You can find me at www.benrockonline.com. And if you go there, you can find all of my social medias, all of them, all at once. And if you're looking for a, a boat... 
just remove the online part and just, just go to benrock.com actually there's nothing on benrock.com right now but i still can't own the domain <laughs> unless those dill holes decide to sell it to me all right well ben uh next episode will be it will be another great one and uh we've got a, a whole bunch of new ones coming behind that so i think that if uh we keep uh we keep our team uh busy we're gonna have a lot of uh fantastic episodes before the end of the year and i'll be excited to announce a sort of uh, new project thing too here on the podcast oh shit i love new things yeah i know it'll be great all right well let's let's cross our fingers for new things everybody this has been the cinematography podcast presented by hot rod cameras find your next camera lens or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com don't forget to subscribe to our show on itunes and connect with us on facebook and twitter thanks for listening we'll be right back.